we realized that we needed to be able to build out software to not only be able to allow every child to be seen, but to make sure that we were teaching valuable, curriculum-aligned, evidence-based, trauma-informed skills. Welcome to the AIS New South Wales Creating Cohesive Communities podcast series developed by the Association of Independent Schools New South Wales. My name is Julia Jembert. And my name is Kate Xavier. And we're from the AIS New South Wales Community Cohesion Project team. Nikki Bonus is the founder and CEO of Life Skills Group and has over 20 years of deeply personal and professional experience in the development and delivery of social emotional literacy programs for individuals, organisations, and most importantly, teachers and students. Nikki's work has helped give voice to more than 850 schools, connecting with 20,000 teachers and 500,000 students nationally, building a continuing evidence base of what works to measure, report and implement real improvements in social, emotional and physical literacy for school communities. Nikki's intrinsic motivation is to show that no matter where you were born, no matter what family you were born into, anything is possible with the right education. Join us as we explore student belonging and well-being for creating cohesive school communities. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands and airways in which we are meeting and broadcasting today as we share our learning. We also pay respect to elders both past and present as it is their knowledge and experiences that holds the key to the success of our future generations. Yeah, as you were saying, you're you're feeling quite inspired to to be here today in terms of opening up the conversation. Yeah, I think that, you know, what a wonderful opportunity to look at, you know, our youth and have conversations around areas that we don't get to have conversations very often. Um, One of the things I feel incredibly inspired is, you know, we are now, we know that without a sense of belonging, um, we have big problems, we have big problems with our youth. And, you know, before it was academics, it was, you know, all of this, and now we're starting to really granularly look at the individuals and the, and the things of influence on our young people. And as someone who's been in the industry for a really, really long time, um, flying the flag for how do we really know how our young people are and what do they need? I think it's a really interesting time in history right now we've just come out of a massive rupture and there is a huge opportunity for repair now and I think that's what is inspiring me this morning to be sitting here with you two that we get to not only have a conversation about it but having a look at how we can all begin to and you were talking before Kate around you know using our voices we need everyone's voice to be at the table for this conversation we need partnerships we need to be working hand in hand no one person no one organization can tackle the largeness of what's in front of us for our youth today what are some of your biggest concerns when it comes to our youth and their well-being and their resilience 
at the it's moment. A really big question. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I think we do. Need that's okay. I think you know. I'm probably going to chunk that down a little bit. I think one of the largest concerns and one of the biggest areas of concern is how do we really know how our young people are? Our traditional methods of measuring well-being um, or even measuring their own social emotional learning has been predominantly through attendance, behaviour incidents and academics. Um, we use ad hoc anonymous surveys occasionally through the systems to know how our young people are um, and yet we have not had a definitive how can we be preventative rather than reactive. So we're seeing a massive increase in school refusal, anxiety, social skills, young people not feeling like they are, they have no sense of belonging, they're not um, they're not going to school and feeling part of, they haven't got their friendship groups. You know, we, you know, we don't need to unpack why because we've had such a disruption, you know, disrupted period of time. But that ability to know what they need rather than building out a scope and sequence of a tick, tick, tick. And I think that's probably the largest thing that we, you know, particularly here in Australia and New Zealand and even I've just got back from overseas, how are we responding to the needs of individual schools, cohorts, students, and then across the board? And how are we measuring that? And what data are we actually using to inform what they need? And I think that's the shift that we've been working on and we've really noticed that there is a shift and it's very new. Um, and then also what are those core competencies that really need to be taught? Like how do we come back to the development of a young person and what they really need. You mentioned, you know, some of these life skills. What are some of these life skills that you think are really important um, for schools to focus on or to consider even? Probably lean back into the social-emotional learning framework. And I think, you know, first and foremost, we need to start with self-awareness. Um, and that's not only for our students but also for our educators and our families as well. I think if we look at the development of a young a young person coming, say, let's start right in foundation or kindergarten, really getting that right, being able to teach the emotional literacy, self-regulation, those base skills so that we're giving them the confidence, the ability to be able to communicate and the language to be able to communicate. And then, you know, within that there's this very large piece around, you know, co-regulation. So it's a two-way street. We've got, you know, our young people needing those foundational skills um, and they might not be getting them at home. Also, you know, I'm a mother too, being able to teach emotional literacy. That wasn't taught to me at home. It wasn't taught to me at school when I was growing up. We didn't know the science behind it. We didn't know the neuroscience behind it. There's all, And it's not that we, we as families are letting our children down. It's just that we didn't know what, you don't know what you don't know. Um, but I think getting the ability to be able to teach a young person to identify their emotions, to have the confidence to be able to speak about them, to be able to also work within a system of co-regulation to be able to learn how to self-soothe because all of these things, and coming back to your question, if we can build healthy, connected, trusting relationships, and I always say that everything about schools is about relationships. It's about relationships. And if we can get that piece right, 
and you know, you ask me what I think. I'm standing on a soapbox right now. I think, you know, I love the Dan Siegel model of his four S's. You know, if a young person is safe, safe, if they feel safe and not just in physical safety, but they've got that emotional and psychological safety, if we can really bring that into the room, not only do they feel secure, they are also being able to self-suit themselves. And there's this ability for when we have safety and we have security and we can self-soothe, the ability for that young person to have the scaffolding, to know when to speak up when something's not going right. And I think that is an amazing opportunity. Schools and stability are not working hand in hand at the moment. There's a lot of teacher shortage and I think having processes that are wrapped around schools that give visibility in real time of how our young people are and what they need, we need to lean on processes to also reduce teacher workload and also support schools so that they've got rich, valuable data that's actionable. And one of the things that I suppose that we hear really strongly is we don't want more data for data's sake. We want something that is going to inform how we create safety and security within our schools rather than another thing that we just have to survive. So going back to the very beginning, for for those that um, don't know about your amazing organisation, can you just give us a little bit of history behind the Life Skills Group and how that came about? Yeah, sure. I think I might just share a story if that's okay. I am, um, you know, we're all in education and I'm sure we've all had this experience, but when I was younger, I knew this incredible young boy and he loved animals, he loved playing with his tennis ball against the wall and he was really, 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 really quiet. And he was one of those students in primary school that was never in trouble, never kind of being pulled into a principal's office. And yet he came from an unsafe home and he was parentified and there was a lot happening but no one noticed. He didn't feel that he fitted in and he found a way to self-soothe himself through um, unhealthy behaviour in high school, um, which led him into finding a group of people and running with a group of people and ended up Um, using drugs and alcohol um, to self-soothe his discomfort. And unfortunately, by the time he was in his um, 20s, he had taken his life. I suppose a really tragic part of that story is that was my brother. And to me, when I look at that, I was sort of the opposite. I was the really academic child, yet same environment, Um, just different ways of dealing with my fracturing of how I fitted in within a school environment, which I didn't. Um, And yet by high school, what ended up happening was I was consistently suspended and expelled, and yet no one really stopped and asked me what was going on, and no one really got underneath the behaviour of, and by no means am I saying that I was easy. (laughs) It's incredibly complex, but I came from a really complex environment. And where this led me was I looked down the barrel of my life and I looked down the barrel of my family and the intergenerational trauma and I could see the path that was ahead of me unless I did something differently. And 
for me, there was this initially this very, very selfish part of me that I needed to prove that I wasn't going to follow the same path. And I wanted to really prove out that no matter where you were born, no matter what happened to you, anything was possible. So starting that into my career was really around how do I bring what was perceived as soft skills um, into mainstream education? And it was really back then it was very much it was peace, love and mung beans, you know, but like in all seriousness it was people were kind of, they would giggle at me. You know, I'd present at principals conferences or I'd be presenting, you know, bits and pieces and people would sort of, they're there, me dear. Um, and yet... You know, I stuck to it because I looked at I look at my life today and I've had to work really, really hard. You know, I've had to work hard on my own skills and tools and it's, you know, it's, it hasn't just been a tap me on the head and I've got this amazing self-awareness and, you know, it's been an ongoing process and it's been a lot of work. But the thing that I really, really loved is probably 12 to 13 years ago, the the evolution of neuroscience and neuroplasticity and what we now know about brain science has solidified that well-being is a trainable skill. And that has led to initially when we were rolling out programs in schools to teach positive relationships, communication, self-regulation, um, emotional literacy, it led to this ability to, from working hand-in-hand with schools, to look at schools often, and not, there's no judgment here, but schools often grasp at programs in a reactive measure to what they're seeing in front of them. And yet they'll quickly get rid of a program as well if there's another issue that pops up. And what we noticed was over sort of 12 years, 13 years of working with schools, and we were working with about 850 schools at the time, so we're getting really a lot of valuable feedback and data was no one was measuring the efficacy of what they were bringing in. And the other part that we realised is there was no, apart from, say, you know, some schools might be doing PBLs, some schools are looking at their attendance and behaviour incidences, they were still staying in that reactive, reactive, reactive. And working hand-in-hand hand with our communities, we realised that we needed to be able to build out software to not only be able to allow every child to be seen, but to make sure that we were teaching valuable, curriculum-aligned, evidence-based, trauma-informed mm -hmm. skills that were removing teacher workload, but giving visibility to the teachers and helping them to identify what are we seeing, how are we using this longitudinal data to be able to understand what's happening in our community of schools or individual schools or classrooms. It's a very long answer to the evolution of where we are, but that's so sort of what motivated me. My goodness, thank you. That was a really powerful story. And as we know, that storytelling is the most effective way to, to support that learning journey for people and, and to, to form those connections. So thank you so much. In terms of that journey and, and collecting that data, can you unpack for us um, a an example of, of a school that's actually used that data and, and we've seen some incredible growth that's happened in terms of building a, a beautiful, resilient, respectful school community, not only for the teachers but for the students as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've got quite a few that jump to mind. But one of the ones that jumps out for me, and we did a case study and we've been working quite closely with them for the last five years, is they've had a decrease of disruption, suspension and behaviour incidences of 78%. And to me that's like. That's a, a that's large. Huge. I know. That's <laughs> huge. Yeah. I can, this is not little. I know. It's like fall off your chair. And this is not just, you know, there. What I would like to say to that point is it's not just us. You know, mm. well-being, yeah. the ability to see a young person, this, you know, how we measure their sense of belonging, all these things. There's it's multifaceted. But the big thing that leads with this school that I'm thinking of right now is first and foremost was their leadership commitment to what they were doing mm-hmm. and they committed for a minimum of three years. You know, they, And I think that's the big part when we look at often it's a scattergun approach because so much is happening in schools and it's mm-hmm. kind of like how do we prioritise needs? And they went right back to what is our baseline wellbeing here? And so they started using our platform not only to begin to teach those base skills of emotional literacy, self-regulation, but beyond that, using the data not only in their stage meetings every single week but also identifying students of concern Mm -hmm. in the stage meetings every week. And the beautiful thing about our software is it does the heavy lifting for executives and principals and teachers so they don't have to go sort of delving and diving Mm -hmm. into the data. It lifts it up. But they created a habit that it was a non-negotiable. And I love their leadership style. They explained why they were doing it. They knew they had a very uh, colourful community. Um, and then they were using, instead of setting a scope and sequence of, oh, we're going to do this for wellbeing or we're going to do this, you know, character strengths or whatever, term by term, they'd evaluate stage by stage what they were seeing and also triangulating the data with their behavioural attendance, all the things that, you know, the other valuable data as well. But they were in that triangulation, they were able to move from reactive to proactive. And they were also able to then be able to measure the success of programs or what they were implementing, right down to you know, even their young people that were on behaviour management plans and things. So individual students, cohorts, stages and the whole school. The big thing that I'd say is it takes time, you know, in terms of that commitment. And I always say it's a minimum of three years. Um, But when we look at changing and, you know, we're having a culture change here, a culture shift, that takes six years really, you know, and that's kind of six to seven years. But it needs a leadership decision and it it needs the school to have that ability to go every day matters and how our young people are every day matters as well. And yeah. just, yeah. I suppose, one story that when you asked me, I just I think it's worth touching on an individual student. I had this beautiful email come through from a, a deputy principal who said, we had this young person who, you know, normally we'd do our, you know, they were a zones of regulation school and they'd do their little graphs and all the rest of it, but they didn't have, they weren't able to sort of look at, data and be able to have a look across a week or two weeks or three weeks and they said they had this young person who was checking in sad and lonely sad and lonely sad and lonely constantly and this teacher was really kind of 
because um, they were able to see this young child was a child that might have needed some extra assistance. This deputy principal went, oh, my gosh, this is a new arrival. This is a child that actually we probably wouldn't have thought of that well. We wouldn't have thought of because they looked well-adjusted, they were doing all the things, we had these programs, but we weren't actually able to lift up and actually see that individual student was really, really struggling. And they were able to wrap not only a really important conversation and be able to engage with that young person, but they were also able to do something really quickly to support. And within three weeks, that young child was happy and calm and functioning. And I think I just use that just as one little goosebumps. I know. And it just um, circles back to the voice. Mm. It actually provided a voice and a platform for potentially someone, a student that was voiceless in a way, not not by design. Mm. And to actually prop that up and within moments, mm. you know, the journey shifted mm. quite profoundly. That's huge. In terms of you mentioning the student and, and, and saying sad and lonely, can you just um, unpack that a bit more in terms of the interface of, of the actual software? Mm. What does that look like? How does that kind of practically speaking, you know, for, for a student or a school? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really good question and I think I just kind of want to dovetail it back into a comment that you made. Everything is student-led and it's all about empowering student voice and this is the really, you know, particularly from our background, as I mentioned before, working deeply hand-in-hand with schools. The last thing we wanted was teachers to have to input something or to have to fill something out. So the actual interface looks like the accessibility to access it can be through an iPad, it can be through a laptop, it can be on an interactive whiteboard, and it takes seconds. It literally is the young people walk up, it's age appropriate, and the platform is actually scaffolded through a child's development of their emotional literacy and their social emotional learning. So a kindergarten's uh, interface will look really, really different to, say, a year eight, or a learning support interface will look really different to a mainstream So the young people will come up, they'll register how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way. There's different um, digital or visual assets um, that schools can also customise and it is fully customisable as well. Particularly in a class of 26, 30 students, we can have different visuals as well. So they're less complex for the young people. So we have more um, facial expressions so that they're actually able to look at them rather than read words or use emojis. And what we found was also involving them in the, the diversity and the different um, the different ways that they wanted to interact. Part of that was also providing, it's not just, you know, there's all these words around having check-in tools. Like I think it's it needs to teach something and it needs to, it's not just checking in, it's actually about really deeply, explicitly, continuously um, teaching how do we identify emotions and also how do we begin to self-regulate it. And I think with that interface in that instance, it's one thing to know how a young person is, but what we've also made sure we do is we have uh, responsive or adaptive lessons that can be there. And to your question, 
we've used a whole lot of different learning designs to be able to make sure that we encapsulate not only um, new arrivals, but also learning support within a mainstream class, which is a really big piece for me, um, particularly as a mother of a child with very high needs. We've had a very big learning support part and also to be able to allow the teacher to also be able to customise and adapt the classes as well. Amazing. Excellent. <laughs> love it. Really love how that process opens the conversation and it's not about the us and them. It's actually let's work on this together. We have to. It's the only way, you know, true collaboration and partnership. Yeah, I love that it's a safe way that young people are self-identifying. Right. They're, they're sharing with you what they're ready to mm-hmm. and then it opens a safe way to have your capacity to have a safe conversation mm-hmm. and then from there all sorts of initiatives and um, programs can can bloom from this and it's and then having some of those students involved in the design of some of them I think that would be amazing so there's a lot of uh, possibility with this but I also love the fact that we're talking in our project a lot about vulnerable young people who might be vulnerable to particular narratives or ideologies mm-hmm. and um, often uh, from research People often don't identify that that young person was engaging in a particular or feeling a particular way mm-hmm. until much later, and it's often uh, we've heard, you know, that it is this is the last child I would have or the last student that I would have expected. So being able to sort of safeguard and catch um, young people who are feeling isolated or feeling um, lonely or that they're not part of a peer group that's so important in terms of safeguarding young people from harmful for, you know, uh, I guess types of grooming or types mm. of, um, and you know. And coping mechanisms. Correct, yeah, yeah catching absolutely. them out because that's yeah. often, you know, if, if we could ever go back mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. if, you know, it's, you know this is what a, what a great tool to help support mm-hmm. um, catching and safeguarding those young people. So, And I think it, the word safeguarding is really, mm-hmm. you know, that's a critical word here. But the... The majority, and I think about family units, so you talked on research. If there's a young person who's struggling in a family unit or they're unwell, all energy goes to that one and the other ones kind of toe along. When you take that model into a school model, it's that top percent, that you know, that top tier that's getting a lot of energy, it's the squeaky wheel, it's so much resources are wrapped around them. And what, you know, I think if I had a dollar for every time we're here, oh, my gosh, I had no idea what was happening in our school because we just didn't know because we were dealing with exactly like what you were saying, the beautiful, colourful, resilient, adaptive little people who found a really interesting way to get their needs met. Yes. I, I was yes. one of them. So, but in a very maladaptive, not very great way. But they take so much of our energy. And then it's like, what about the other 93%, 95% of our school? And yeah. that's where this model shifts it, yes. where you, you know, and it also, as we all know, we might be travelling really, 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 really well and then something happens and we're not coping so well and we need extra support, but we're able to keep an eye on every single child. I keep mm-hmm. saying, you know, let's ensure that no child falls through the gap. Mm-hmm. So you've got the quiet, you know, and often, you know, if there is large trauma as well, suppression, and also that, you know, as I mentioned right at the beginning, 
often will be overachieving, looking great, never wanting to get, you know, not wanting to be seen or in the sight of anyone, um, compliance, you know, but often underneath compliance is so much going on. So over time when they've got safety and they've got that security and they feel that they can use their voice and they've got agency, then they will be able to express. And that's where, you know, again, time happens. Can I kind of flip it around? Sorry, this might not be. Um, That school cultures, you know, it impacts on not only the students, the families, the teachers in particular. And is, you know, if we play it out, teachers, if they're not feeling culturally safe and and their well-being is impacted, how does that um, influence the dynamics in the classroom? And is there something through this process, a bit of tandem learning opportunities? Because once again, it is an ecosystem. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your question and going right back to the beginning, it is that co-regulation piece. And I was actually just presenting last night and I was saying, you know, a lot of people look at me when we start teaching, you know, how do we help or how do we support teaching emotional literacy and self-regulation, all these skills. And they're often looking at me the same way that I looked at this at the beginning of like, we didn't get this when we were younger, so how are we going to start doing this? It is you're working together. You're both growing together. And the the really, really beautiful part is it gives, you know, teachers' well-being is critical to student well-being. But when there's a partnership between, hey, we're learning this together, we're learning how to do this together, and when that modelling of doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't, you know, emotions are just data, it's being able to identify it, and when we can bring that level to our our transparency and also vulnerability to our young people, they can navigate together. But I think the really, really big thing around teachers' wellbeing as well is how do we support the education around <clears throat> like how do I how do I how can I develop my own presence you know my own ability for focused attention to be in the classroom and this work really brings that about anyway because suddenly we're engaging we're watching we're we're looking at young people and it is a reflective practice as well so we do take each other along on a journey and our young people are our greatest teachers you know when I think about Think about this, this back when I was teaching, and I remember asking, I said, you know, emotions are their biologically based reactions. And they were like, what's that? And I'm like, in our bodies. I was like, how are you feeling? <laughs> this beautiful young boy. He said, I am so happy. I feel like a freshly cut orange. Oh. And I, this was probably 12 years ago. But what I loved about that was he reminded me of the sensation and being able to locate that in my body and that joy. And it is that, that partnership. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're so oh, welcome. Well, I wanted to ask one question. I actually have done your online webinars. And um, as, a, as both a teacher and a mother, I found them really useful with these really practical skills. Yeah. So if, if some of the teachers here listening today want to get in touch with you and they want to kind of find out more, what's the best way for them to do that? Thanks, Kate. Um, pop over. So every webinar that we run is actually on replay. So they're all free. There's lots of resources there. You can re-watch them. You can share them. You can use them in your um, staff meetings if you choose to. And 
Um, just head over to our website, lifeskillsgroup.com.au. Um, there's also free trials as well. So if your school is interested, we also have the ability to, to work with you and your leadership team to come in and do some consulting and to do an implementation plan and a trial. Um, but we are continuously always running webinars as well. So we run them generally every two to three weeks. What we recognise too with those, and thank you so much for that feedback, what we recognised is often schools, you know, they're busy places, but they become they're so busy that we don't have learnings from one school to another. So our commitment to the, to the space is what are you doing because there's some incredible work that's happening over here. How can we share that? And we'll often have different schools sharing what they're doing from very different sort of socioeconomic areas and different demographics. Um, of what they're doing so that we can build community and sharing and learning and knowledge sharing. And we've had an amazing community that just continues to keep growing through those webinars of really practical things that they can bring in. And there's a huge amount of resources and blogs that are regularly updated as well. Sounds like a fabulous community of practice. That's just amazing. Well done. Really inspiring. It's always reassuring to know that we're not alone. We're all going through this, and you can find someone who's got a similar experience to you. And then it's and it's also great sometimes, you know, for teachers on this journey who are looking for more information or you know considering what's out there. I think it's really it's a great that those resources are great. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for providing them. um, You know for for our communities exactly and making it so tangible and accessible as well uh, i think it's just in, just amazing and we really hope that um that this journey can continue for many many schools students teachers families and the broader community absolutely yeah mm-hmm. and thank you for the work that you two do or your team yeah. does thank you thanks so much Thank you for listening to this episode. For further information on the AIS New South Wales Community Cohesion podcast series and project, or any of our guests, please see our show notes 